This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards. If you're looking to unload your collection and maybe turn some of that old cardboard into cash, Greg Morris can help. Greg's always buying collections of vintage basketball, baseball, football, or hockey cards. If you have modern or ultra-modern graded cards, he'll buy those as well. On top of all that, Greg takes cards on consignment. Go to gregmorriscards.com to sell them your cards, or you can email joe at gregmorriscards.com directly. What's up, everyone? This is episode 146 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, uh, like a lot of you, I like talking about cards, I like sharing some of the stories behind them. So, The fact that you're listening today obviously enables me to do just that. So once again, I want to start off by thanking you for giving me that opportunity. Um, I know I don't mention it on here enough, but the hobby community has been incredibly generous to me. And today's final segment is another example of an act of generosity that I'll never forget. Over the last week or two, a group of hobby friends worked together behind the scenes to surprise me with at the mail day that left me speechless. It's a story that I think is definitely worth sharing. I'm going to do my best to put it into words for you, so you'll definitely want to stay tuned for that. Now, before I get there, I have a couple other topics I want to touch on. Um, I went to the Collector's Con in Tampa this past weekend. I went to Trade Night too, and no, I was not one of the topless breakers, but I will tell you about that whole experience and some of the cards I picked up in the process. And then, as usual, I've got some mail that I'm excited to share as well. So let's jump in. Okay, so this weekend was the second ever Collector's Con event in Tampa. The first one was in September, and I set up at that one. I believe I talked about it some on this show. Well, this time I was on the other side of the table. I was just a buyer, but I've got a few things I want to recap for you today. Now, as always, remember that I'm just one guy. This is what I experienced. Someone else, though, might have walked the same aisles and come away with a completely different experience. So this was a three-day show. It was Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And a lot of the shows around here are moving to Fridays, even if they're just two-day shows. I have to work every Friday, so I don't show up until the second day. Um, It also means that I've scaled back on setting up at shows in general because there aren't many promoters that want to rent out a table for just one day, and I completely understand that. Um, I know I talked to a couple people at this show that said it still seems like a really large local show. And it kind of felt that way to me as well. Um, It didn't seem like there were as many people from out of town as there was the first time around. I saw a firsthand account from a dealer online, and he said he actually rented a U-Haul and drove everything down to Florida. And in the end, it probably wasn't worth it for him. So right now, it kind of seems like this show wants to be on the level of Dallas and Philly and some of the other big regional shows. It's definitely not there. I'm not sure if it ever will be. Um, That doesn't mean it's a horrible show. 
Um, in fact, I'm going to have Zach, a.k.a. BDRR, back on the show soon to compare some of the regional shows and help you map out your 2022 show circuit. So you want to be on the lookout for that. So he will. Um, he was at Tampa. He will talk about that in the process. But anyway, as far as Tampa goes, I was just a buyer and I only did Saturday. But I was there from open to close because... I wanted to go to trade night, and there was no sense in leaving and paying for parking again. I mean, I guess I could have done it, but I'm cheap. So um, it also meant being there all day that I wasn't rushed. So I guess it gave me an excuse to be there all day too, which is a good feeling when you're staring at boxes and boxes on end. Um, This show was held at the Tampa Convention Center. I haven't been to a lot of big shows to compare it to, but I felt like there was plenty of room to walk around. There was seating if you wanted to take a break. There was a pretty definitive line where the sports stuff ended and the Pokemon stuff began. And I don't mind the two things being at the same show, but it helps to keep them separated. And I think the promoters did a pretty good job with that. Um, I didn't see a huge grading presence while I was there. You know, really don't expect to see PSA or BGS feel like they have to be at any of these shows right now. They're they're backlogged. Um, But CSG was set up pretty close to the entrance, so that was nice. I don't know if they were slabbing much on site, but... Um, having a grading company there helps legitimize the show in my mind. And um, another thing that matters to a lot of people would be the athlete appearances. And at the first Collector's Con, they had Ronald Acuna, which was a pretty big deal. He's For those of you that aren't baseball people, he's a pretty big name in baseball. Um, I know there were people that were frustrated by the lack of athletes this time around. They had a Rays player on Sunday, but that was about it. Um, They did have some Pokemon and voice actors, but that's not really my thing. Once again, I think it's worth noting, though, that it was there. So um, obviously, though, I was there for the cards. That's what you expect to hear from me. Well, guess what? There were quite a few of those. And as with most big shows, there were what I would call the museum booths. These would be some of the big dealers or breakers like Layton or Breakers Row Uh, The Leighton booth was right when you came in the door, and they had an awesome baseball showcase that had all Bat Barrel and Bat Nameplate cards of Legends. It's not every day that you see a Bat Barrel card of Ty Cobb. Um, There was another booth that I really enjoyed that had a Finals, a LeBron Finals booklet, and then a Tristan Thompson Finals booklet logo man. And it turns out that this dealer was a local collector that had never set up before. So that's interesting. You know, these awesome cards were kind of right there in my backyard. Um, he saw my shirt and he said that he had seen a YouTube video I did about my Com C submission. So that was kind of cool. Kind of, you know, small world, right? Um, speaking of dealers, obviously I can't give you any firsthand experiences from this show because I was not a dealer, but I can summarize what a couple of my dealer friends mentioned to me or what I've, I've read from dealers online. The ones that I talked to in person said the majority of their deals were from one dealer to the other. And in some cases, these were bulk lots in other cases, just singles you know, at some point that gets singles gets tricky because every time the card gets passed from one person to another, the price generally goes up, even if it's only marginally. I had another dealer tell me that a lot of potential buyers were looking to trade. And to be honest, you know, I took this approach at times as well. Um, it's, it is something that's becoming more common, whether people like it or not. And you know what? There are people out there that are looking to trade. I worked out two separate trades on the show floor. Uh, Mind you, they had some cash involved too, but um, that's the most I've ever done at one show too. Yes. Um, You know, there seems to be a negative stigma around trading right now because so many people want to do it, but there are some nice cards walking around on the show floor. I think every dealer should at least take the time to look 
and consider it. And all the smart dealers that I talk to, they do. Um, and just a little side conversation here. I think this is a good spot to talk about this. I've mentioned the negative stigma around trading. I think a lot of that's because the quote-unquote traders are the ones carrying the uh, Zion cases or the slab cases. Um, you know, when you see them, you know them. They kind of all, a lot of them fit the same mold. Um, I thought of them as I was listening to one of Dr. Beckett's recent podcasts where he had a guest on to help him cover some of the early days of BGS grading. And it was one of those episodes that I want to make sure to catalog because the information was so good. I like to keep those kind of things in my records. So um, he talked about when they first started grading and grading on site at shows in 2000. And he mentioned there was a group of younger collectors that really utilized slabs to their advantage, uh, mainly because they had to. And Dr. Beckett said people called them the Young Turks. And he said that was a term of endearment, by the way. But um, because they didn't have legacy collections from being in the hobby a decade or even longer so they were innovative enough to use what they could to help level the playing field. Well, that obviously has some major parallels today, which you know makes sense because history repeats itself in many cases. So I know all of the Zion case, or whatever you want to call them, slab boys walking around and trying to move their slabs is a pain to a lot of people. You know, I've probably been guilty of making some comments about them too from time to time, but um, at the same time, they have to enter the hobby somewhere and build up their collection how they can. So a lot of those same guys are taking some bumps now because they're finding that all good things must come to an end or that, you know, the market has to cool when it grows that exponentially. Um, and there's an experienced cost attached to that. So the ones that really want to be in this will find a way to work out of it or grow from it. The ones who truly don't want to be here will likely cut their losses and move on. And I think we're continuing to see that play out. So anyway, a uh, little side conversation there, but I thought that was worth mentioning and I definitely want to plug that episode of Dr. Beckett's podcast. Very good. Um, so anyway, I wasn't a dealer at this particular show. I wasn't carrying a Zion case around, but I, I'm an old school backpack guy. Um, but those are a few pieces of information that were shared with me. So I am, however, a little more qualified to give you a buyer's perspective. And like I said earlier, remember, I'm just one guy. So for example, I, I saw a recap on the blowout forums where a guy said he didn't see any RPAs. Well, I saw plenty. So one booth even had Jason Tatum and Donovan Mitchell in the same showcase right next to one another. Um, you know, I pointed that out to him and he said, well, I meant some of the mid-end guys I was looking for. So always, you know, take everyone's recap that they give you and compare it to other people's. Um, so whenever I do these recaps, though, people seem to want to know about pricing. I didn't ask about any of the real liquid stuff or real high-end stuff, but the prices on the stuff I asked about seemed pretty fair. And that seems to be an improvement from this narrative, you know, of recent about shows where every dealer's above eBay and no one's willing to take a loss and no one wants to sell cards at fair value. That's not what I experienced at all. Um, one, I, I will say, um, I am more interested in the loose boxes though. So that's kind of where I spent my time and going into this thing, I was a little worried that I missed out on some, um, nice value digs is what I would call them as a result of skipping Friday. And it's likely that I did. Um, there were a lot of people who had a chance to go through the boxes before I did, but I still managed to find some pretty good deals nonetheless. I'm not going to talk about all of the little things here, but I made a YouTube video that shows those in detail. You can check that out at your leisure. One table had a 50% sign on all of their boxes, and I thought their prices were already fair as is. And in fact, on their graded card box, I didn't see the 50% 
price at first, and I was about ready to buy a um, 61 Fleer uh, SGC3 Cliff Hagen at full price. But um, so anyway, that was 50% off. That that was a good table. I ended up going there twice. I can't imagine what all could have been found in those on Friday. Um, some people also seem oblivious to the fact that in a lot of cases, pricing can fluctuate depending on one's approach and one's temperament. And this is difficult for even the most seasoned collectors because you have to be able to read someone um, when you're trying to work out a deal. And this only improves the more reps you get. You need practice. You got to stumble along the way in order to get better at this. Um, the more shows you go to, the more of these difficult conversations you'll have, and then they become less difficult. So, for example, I sat down by a guy that had already, a cust another customer that had already amassed a nice little stack of veteran autos and patches. And before he even engaged the dealer, he sat there on his phone and he looked up every single one of them. There's nothing wrong with that. That's his right. But when he was finished, instead of a simple hello or anything like that, he kind of hastily approached the dealer and said, what can you do on these? Because these stickers are nowhere close to what these cards have sold for. Imagine if you were selling cards and that was somebody's first interaction with you. You know, I could tell the dealer was taken aback by this. And, um, you know, that's one case where it's like, whoa, I, you know, I definitely want to learn from his experiences. I don't want to make those same mistakes. And um, the dealer showed the buyer a case where his card was actually underpriced. And of course, the buyer, the potential buyer, I should say, didn't like that. He got aggressive again. They didn't get very far before he walked away. Um, and that was after he spent all that time digging and pricing things out. So he's trying to be cheap um, with his wallet, but he's spending his time, which I'm sure also has some value to him, comping all those cards. It's just a really strange approach. And I looked at the seller after and made a comment along the lines of, you know, what was wrong with that guy? And um, we talked about the fact that he didn't even throw out a number or attempt to bridge the pricing gap any. And... So that guy, you know, if he's writing a recap out there, he's probably telling people that dealers were unreasonable when the whole time it was him that was being unreasonable. Uh, even if those sticker prices were high, he never did anything um, constructive to try and, and, you know, alleviate that. So as I've said before, this is why I think everyone should set up as a dealer at least once, even if it's just a small show in the middle of nowhere. It changes your perspective on buying quite a bit it helps to have these back and forth interactions with people. So um, before all was said and done, I made a handful of small purchases. Some of them are cards that I'll probably end up flipping for Pacers cards. And then I made a couple cash and trade deals as well. Um, the first one came pretty early in the day. So over the years, I've accumulated three 2004-2005 Reggie Miller Topps Chrome Black Refractors. They used to be pretty cheap. Um, and I, you know, I'd buy Reggie refractor lots and they'd be in there. So I just kind of set them aside. I kept the best one for my PC and I finally put the other two in my trade box because I really don't need three. So I traded two of those, um, along with $35 for a really nice looking Tim Duncan tops Chrome rookie. That was a PSA eight. And that was a card I've kind of always wanted. It shot up during COVID. It started to come back down to earth now. And, um, it was a good looking eight. So very happy with that. And then the second card I grabbed, a much bigger card, is one that I'm really excited about. Um, I dealt a combination of cards and some cash for a 2004-2005 Upper Deck Trilogy Swatches of Stardom Jumbo Relic of Bill Russell, numbered to 50. 
And it's funny, I actually got that from Zach, who I already mentioned earlier. Um, I was looking for his table when I came across this card, but I didn't know it was his. And as I was roaming around, I found a pretty nice box to start sorting through. I'm thinking, oh, this is a box that's full of stuff, the kind of stuff that I like. So I stopped. Well, it turns out it was Zach's. And out of the corner of my eye, I noticed this big green swatch. And I knew the set well because I've had cards from it before. And I immediately put down whatever cards were in my hands from those boxes so I can move to the side and get a closer look at that Russell. Um, I haven't had this feeling too many times when I was at a show. The last time I can remember it was when I saw the Reggie Miller Ultimate Premium patches at the National. But I saw that card, and in my head, of course, you, you never want to say this out loud, but in my head I said, I'm not going home without that. So around that time, Zach walked up to the table. So it, it was kind of reassuring to know, hey, this was someone that I dealt with many times before. So um, it was, you know, possible that I could end up coming home with this card. And um, I want to thank him because he was very willing to work with me. He knew I really wanted this one without me blatantly saying I'm not going home without it. Although to him, I might have actually said that. But, um, you know, he could have demanded a big card from me. And, uh, you know, I, I opened my box and said, hey, look through, you know, let's, you're, you know how I am, let's work something out. And um, he was gracious enough to take a handful of smaller cards, and then I added a good amount of cash into that, and we made a deal. There are a couple things that really stick out to me about this card, though, aside from the fact that it's a, a jumbo Bill Russell relic. Number one, it's a beautiful design from my favorite era of cards, which that would be 2003 to 2005. Um, there was a lot to offer there. There was a lot of competition. That's when I, you know, really got back into cards again. I took a break from 2000 to 2003. I came back in 2003. So, you know, I came back full steam ahead with LeBron and Pacers. So that whole era has a lot of nostalgia for me. And then number two, the back of the card has some very specific terminology. You might remember from last week's episode, that's really important to me. So this card says... Congratulations, you've received a game a game used shorts card from the Upper Deck Company. On the front of this card is an authentic piece of shorts worn by Bill Russell in an NBA game. We hope you enjoy this piece of basketball history as we at Upper Deck continue to keep you as close as you can get. So they're actually treating a historical relic as just as a historical relic. That was kind of nice. Um, I posted a picture of this on my social media from the show it doesn't do it justice. I was I knew I knew it was a cruddy picture when I posted it, but at the same time I was so proud of this card that I just had to show it off. So you can see it better in my YouTube video of my pickups. I showed the front and the back. If that interests you, go ahead look on my channel. It's pretty easy to find. All right. From there it was on the trade night and from everything that I can find, I'm pretty sure this event was sponsored or or promoted at least, definitely promoted by the Whatnot app. Uh, I'll touch more on the whatnot crowd in a little bit here, but this was held in three connected rooms in another part of the convention center, and there was quite a bit of seating, which was nice because nobody wants to get stuck standing around after they've been walking on concrete for eight to ten hours. Um, I planned a, a similar approach to the one I used at Nationals. I had a friend with me, and he said, I've never been to one of these before. I'm going to rely on you. And I just said, hey, look, here's what I'm going to do. I can't promise it'll be successful. But here's what I'm going to do. And actually, he ended up having a much better night than I did. He did use my approach. Um, I guess he he had all the soccer cards, though. That's what people wanted. But 
A lot of my trade box still has price stickers on it from when I set up at my last show. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to grab a spot at a table and stack some out where people can see it. That way I can stay put and people that are walking by might see something that they like. And this worked really well for me at the National. I think part of the reason was there were more people than seats. So people had no choice but to keep moving. It didn't work so well here for me. I made one small deal and that was it. Now, that's no fault to the way trade night was set up, by the way. Um, I needed to stick my stuff in a box and move around more. I'll know better next time. Um, you know, I still had a good time though. But at the same time, the fact that I didn't move around much spared me from some of the stuff you might have seen on social media. I know Lameem James shared a picture from the event. I think it originally came from Ryan at Breakout Cards, but... In case you didn't see it, the, the picture I'm referring to is a small group of breakers that were opening cards shirtless. All males, mind you. Uh, I lumped them in with the whatnot crowd. And I lump probably is the most appropriate word there in more ways than one. Um, and the irony is they were passing out free whatnot shirts. But um, anyway, look, I'm sure there are some really practical uses for the app. But all of those uses are tainted by this sort of theater that seems to be so prevalent there. Um, I would say the number of thespians in the hobby seems to be increasing by the day. And I'm hoping that at some point people will look beyond all the bells and smells and seek out some real substance. But in the meantime, if people are entertained or amused by that, then that's their right, I suppose. It just doesn't appeal to me. Regardless, it was a great day. I got to chat with a lot of people that love the hobby. I got to see a bunch of cool cards. And I came home with a few nice additions to the PC in the process. So I really can't complain about that. Okay, enough about Collector's Con. On to the mail, or at least part of it. Some of this stuff I've posted online already. I know I posted this first piece, but I want to talk about it here um, nonetheless. I got a very thoughtful Christmas card from Jeremy, a.k.a. Big Smooth TX. He sent me a few things in the past, including a Taco Bell rookie card. I, I think I talked about that on here. So anyway, Mrs. Wax Museum and I had received a handful of Christmas cards in the mail on the same day. And, um, you know, usually the Mrs. Wax Museum is the one that kind of handles all the Christmas cards, the sending and receiving. So I kind of grouped them together and just handed them to her. And um, when she got to this one, she looked at the return address and said, I think these are your people. And she handed it back to me. And my first thought was, what do you mean your people? But um, I opened it up and, and like I said, it was a very thoughtful card. And it also included a Jeff Foster card I didn't have. I, and I say it's a card. It's really a pocket schedule on uh, thicker stock than normal from the 97-98 uh, Southwest Texas basketball team, which is really cool. So this is a really obscure item. You guys know I appreciate things like that. I didn't have that one. So thanks again, Jeremy. That was really cool. That was a lot of fun to open. Okay, um, the final item I'm going to talk about in this mail segment is actually a game-worn item, or at least it's player-used. I don't know for sure if it was worn in a game. I've mentioned it on here before. I don't pick up a lot of that stuff. I like it, but when I get it, I don't know what to do with it. It's big. It's bulky. In fact, the last piece I purchased was a Jeff Pendergraph warm-up that I talked about on here. It's still just kind of hanging up in my hobby room. And it, it smelled awful when I got it. I think I need to get it dry cleaned because the room just kind of absorbed that smell over time. It's a bit of a problem. But 
Um, anyway, this past week, these items didn't smell nearly as bad. And they probably should have. But this past week, I grabbed a pair of Derek McKee signed shoes for like $35 shipped. I was watching them on auction. I took a chance that they wouldn't get any bids at $45 shipped. They didn't. I swooped in with an offer after the fact, and and uh, we made a pretty easy transaction. So the thing that I really liked about this pair, though, was the COA that came with it. Because these were originally obtained in an eBay auction in 1999 from Rick Smits, of all people. So the COA reads as follows. This certificate is presented to the holder to ensure that this item is authentic in nature and was purchased in the Walton Task Force Youth Center auction held in the months of November and December 1999. It is ensured that these basketball shoes were autographed by Derek McKee and were donated specifically for the purpose of this auction. And it's then signed by Rick Smiths and Candace Smiths, who is his wife, and they're labeled as co-directors on this document of that youth center, which is in New York. That makes sense because that's um, where he spent a lot of time. So the COA only really authenticates the autograph. I find it hard to believe he would just sign some random shoes for them. And at the very least, you know, I'd say they're practice worn because I posted them on YouTube and someone mentioned that the insoles were removed, which number one was a great observation that I didn't even notice. And, and number two, they said that's a great sign that they were actually used by the players because that's a pretty common trend with game-worn or practice-worn stuff. So when I get a little more time over the next month, over the holiday break, I'm going to try and look at some old game photos to see if Derek wore any similar models around that time. Anyway, that was something different that stood out to me. And when it comes to collectibles, when you see something different, that's generally the time to pick it up. That's been my philosophy over the years, and it's worked pretty well for me thus far. All right, before I tell you about the most surprising piece of mail I've received in a while, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com Click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hey, this is Bob Nettleke, former Indiana Pacer. Played on a few championship teams, had a lot of fun. You know, I'm listening to the Wax Museum Podcast, one of the best there is. Okay, so the final thing I want to talk to you about today is really an extension of the Mail Day segment. But it's got quite the story to go with it. So I wanted to save it for the end of today's show. I thought it was a good uh, main event, so to speak. So sometime last week, I got a direct message from Dan, a.k.a. The Itch for Cards on Instagram. And it was a picture of a package from someone named William. Which at the time, that it, I didn't really think much of it. But um, when I got it, then I did. But anyway, he said something to the effect of, I'm sending you this package this week. You probably want to open it on video, open the card first, and then read the letter. So it showed up, and I did just that, and and I honestly had no clue what to expect. I cut the envelope open, and the card was a 1997-98 Metal Universe Championship PMG of Austin Crozier, which was his rookie year as well. Um, If you're a 90s guy, you can probably already picture this card, or at least some of the other cards in this set. It's got Austin dunking the basketball in his home white uniform. Um, Like a lot of the other cards, there's a galaxy theme, right? It looks like there might be the earth behind him. 
Um, and so that's the same as the base, except then, as you know, the PMG has a lot cooler pattern on the surface. If you're newer to the hobby, the best thing I can compare it to would probably be some of the scope parallels that Panini's put out. Um, I don't think that description does it justice, but that's just the closest thing that um, I can compare it to that's um, newer. And it doesn't have quite the same effect because it's not on a chromium card. But um, and then like all the circles, when you move the card back and forth, they kind of they twist together in groupings of like four or five circles. It's really cool on the surface. You got to see a video of it, though. Um, and then, of course, it's numbered to 50. So I, I did take I mentioned a video. I took a quick video of it for social media because I wanted to thank some people. But I'll get a much better shot of it in the near future when I have a little more time. I tell you what, these last couple weeks have just been crazy. But um that was the card portion, but there was a, you know, and, and that in itself is, is pretty significant, but, um, there was a letter in there as well, as he said, and I've received a letter from Dan on another occasion, and I can tell he puts a lot of thought into consideration into everything he types up. And this letter was no exception. So, um, instead of summarizing it, I'd just like to actually read it for you today, if you don't mind. So he said, Kyle, I was scrolling through my stories and came across this Austin Crozier Metal Universe PMG that Billy, House of Cards, had available. When I saw it, I instantly thought of you. I first thought of the base version that I sent to Ricky on the Pact of the Future podcast to shred last Christmas in a Secret Santa Revenge pack. Um, for those of you that don't know, Ricky is my um, quote-unquote adversary, right? Um so how he said, however, this version was way too nice to shred and thought it should go to the museum. I wanted to find a way to get this card to you in appreciation of all that you have done for the hobby. However, I alone could not swing the premiums that Austin Crozier demands. I realize that I probably am not the only one that appreciate all you have done for the hobby. I threw the idea over to Sholey, a.k.a. Boston Steve, a.k.a. Boston Correspondent Steve, a.k.a. Crowder Collector, a.k.a. Wax Museum Standby Guest. Um, he thought it was a good idea. I began reaching out to some of your most devoted listeners and ask if they would like to make a contribution toward the purchase of the card. I let House of Cards know what I was planning, and he gave me a great deal, as he's a big show uh, fan of the show, too. Quickly, the responses came in with an overwhelming response in support of this. Below are those that wanted to say thank you. And then he lists the names there. So it's got Jason, a.k.a. Small Town, Ryan, Mind Cycle, Eric, Slang and Rocks PC, Hugo, Nebrolian PC, David, Mostly 90s Basketball Cards, Chad, Ricky, and Tim at Pact of the Future Podcast, Ismail at Havlicek Sold the Cards, Tommy at Hoops Cards and More 91, Steve, S. Halley 2003, and then he says Billy. He calls him Billy. House of Cards 1. Um, he continued, thank you for all the hours of dedication to your podcast every week for nearly 150 episodes for over two years. Thank you for the thorough research to educate us all about the past, present, and future sports cards. Thank you for the RPA tracker as a tool to keep others accountable. Thank you for the entertainment on your podcast, your YouTube channel, as a guest on other podcasts, interviews with newspapers, the group chats, and personal messages. And then he said, thank you, Dan. Um, so that, uh, was a lot to take in for me in a good way. I mean that in a good way, but, uh, if you saw me, my YouTube video of opening this card, you'll know I was pretty speechless when the whole thing went down. Um, I'm not much of a like screaming excitement kind of guy, but you can, you can tell that I'm kind of stunned when I just kind of stammer and, and I just don't know what to say. 
And that's that was my reaction to this card. In fact, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. I really don't know what to say other than thank you, of course. So um, thank you to everyone that had a part in bringing this to fruition. I want you to know that it means a lot to me. And going forward, every time I thumb through my Pacers box, that card's going to hit me a little bit different than the others. And, and this is certainly something that I'll never forget. So, um, all right. I, I think that's a good stopping point for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, maybe there was something I talked about today that resonated with you. Maybe you have a similar story of someone's generosity in the hobby. Those stories need to be told. So let me know on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>